unbelievably mild Sunday morning here on the west coast of Canada as we are joined by a couple of guests from the opposite side of the country. We are pleased to welcome Drs. Jennifer Donan and Lisa Bishop from Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador to the program. Uh, Jennifer and Lisa, good morning to you both and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, this, uh, I, I'm going to just quote one a paragraph from your article, and this should hopefully set up a good conversation. I've been looking forward to this for several days. Many of us grew up in a society that prohibited the use of cannabis. Well, I think we all did. When Canada, uh, cannabis rather was legalized in 2018, it was a major shift for most Canadians. How successful have we been in changing the mindset from it being an illegal and or a stigmatized drug to one that is legal and socially acceptable. Education about cannabis has been inconsistent across Canada. I think that's very generous adjective too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. I think what I find to both of you, just for a general comment to start things off, what I find in terms of the messaging, at least here in British Columbia uh, and in Ontario, which I'm also familiar with, having spent some time there recently, uh, the messaging is this. Okay, it's legal. Uh, it's legal because the politicians made it legal. Those of us who are organizing the information behind this substance think it's wrong. It's bad. We shouldn't be doing this, and yet we have to. So here we go. And that's the tone that's still a year and many months more after that. It's still bad. It's wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. But here we go anyway. Is that a, Do you get that hit at all? Uh, yeah, I think I think we get the same messages ac- across the country, certainly here in Newfoundland as well. I mean, we make an effort to to educate the population and, you know, to do that in an unbiased way, but I think there are still some, um, you know, stigmatized feelings that are existent within society and, and the people who are who are educating as well. So, yeah, there's lots of challenges we need to face. Now, was that Lisa or Jennifer that just responded yeah. to me? Uh, Jennifer. Well, thanks for that, Jennifer. Uh, and uh, I guess, Lisa, the other part of that would be if you're unconvinced that the people in charge think it's all really bad and awful and wrong, Look at the packaging, for crying out loud. I don't imagine it's terribly different in Newfoundland and Labrador than it is in B.C. It is almost impossible to open any cannabis product from a legal cannabis store. Yes, and I mean, packaging is some of the issues that we've heard when we've been talking to people because, I mean, it's it's hard to open and there's a lot of wording and, and things that need to go on it. So in some ways, it's, it's good because you know what you're getting. You sure. know what concentration of you're course. getting, and, and there's warnings on it. But, yeah, there are, I think there's some work that needs to be done in terms of what's the the best way to package it so it's safe for everybody, but then it's not hard for people to open and, and use and and wastage in the environment and those kinds of things. But Lisa, the the, the, the rationale for, the, for all of this is, of course, it's the children. We're protecting the children of Canada from this horrible stuff, and we have to make it almost impossible for grown-ups to open. So, you know, we're just, it's all about saving the kids here. So grown-ups deal with it. 
and, and they just let it go. Again, these are bureaucrats in charge rather than people who are, 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 are I think, a little are looking at the big picture a little more. Jennifer, what did they miss? What's the biggest single missing message since cannabis has been legalized right across Canada? I think, I mean, we've talked to a lot of people, and when we did our needs assessment, I mean, we talked with stakeholders and citizens, and um, really to get an impression on what what do we need to evaluate, what do we need to look at now that we're, well, at the time was two years, but now two and a half years post-legalization, where are the issues that we can address? And across the board, there was many issues around education, which is why we wrote this article, because... um, there were so many pieces of education that seemed to be missing. And so while there's been a ton of effort putting into creating materials, doing promotional ads, um, there's lots of things that are out there. Um, you know, it just requires a very consistent and concerted effort over a long period of time to make a change on people's mindset and awareness around cannabis because it's been so long ingrained that it's a, it's a bad product, it's a stigmatized product. And so it just takes, I think, a lot of time. So it, it's not entirely missing, but it, it's it's going to take a lot of effort to to kind of get where we need to get with it. Yeah, Lisa. For example, here in BC, the government, the provincial government, is running you know kind of mad type ads. You know, uh, using uh, impaired is impaired is impaired. Basically, is the right. message whether it's booze or cannabis or anything, any other substance that puts you where you shouldn't be behind the wheel. Uh, except it, again, it's the wording, Lisa. They say mm-hmm. if if you drink alcohol. Or if you use drugs, well, use is is code for needles. Cannabis people don't use. They, they ingest, they smoke, but they don't shoot up. And when they use language like that, it's talking down to cannabis people and placing them in a category that would next that you'd see them down in Hastings in Maine. Uh, it's it's just again, and that's deliberate. So who's doing that? Yeah, and that that's some of the things that we've heard too in terms of there's a lot of stigma. So I mean, we across the country, and it goes back to your first point that you mentioned about how we grew up with cannabis being illegal, and that's the mindset. Sure. So we need to change that mindset, because this is more on the same playing field as alcohol, right? Alcohol is much more normalized. You have to be safe about using it. You need to be aware of the risks and when to use it, so don't be impaired, mm-hmm. right? So don't drive when using cannabis or alcohol. But it's, it's about the messaging, and how, what's the best messaging to use to help educate the general public and, and everybody, whether you choose to use cannabis or not, then that's a that's a big thing around the stigma. But it's also about changing the mindset, so changing the mindset of the public, but also one of the things that we noticed too from our needs assessment is that even people who use cannabis are using it in public, which you can't do, or you smell it when people are driving by cars. Mm-hmm. Same as alcohol. You can't drink when you're driving. You can't use cannabis when you're driving. True. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of different elements, and it's new, right? So it's only two and a half years. It's new for everybody. So these are the types of things that, that people need to be educated about on a whole array of different areas. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. 
Well, it certainly is, and, uh, in ter- and it is new, and there's still a certain element of the population, back to that with the use of the, uh, of the word use, there's still, there's still an element of the population that uh, remains relatively uneducated about this because of bias, perhaps, but they still remain, conv- they're sort of some of the reefer madness crowd, where, you know, you smoke a joint, and the next day you're, you're, you're using heroin. Uh, I mean, it's the gateway drug drug argument <laughs> that really went away a very very long time ago so it was thought but it's have have you been surprised in the course of your research how much of that still lingers um i think we've most of our time we've spent talking to you know consumers of cannabis or stakeholders within the industry we will be you know spreading out and talking to more of the general public as we move further into our research. So I think the population we've spent most of our time talking to are the people who are trying to change the mindset, trying to reduce the stigma. Right. Um, and they do say that I think the stigma, it, it is changing, but it is slow. And so there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. And just to pick up to your comment on the word user, I think that's exactly, I mean, that's come up in some of our conversations as well. And so, you know, trying to use the word consumer as mm-hmm. opposed to user, right. you know, kind of relates it more to alcohol as opposed to more illicit substances. And and that will be part of changing that mindset. And, you know, we were using that language early on, too. And it's just, it's things that we're learning as we're going along, ways to change the mindset and change that stigma. Right. And and who is responsible for the information packaging? Uh, because I know in your article, you say that the, the government of Canada has dedicated more than 100 million bucks over six years for an education campaign. Is that their money? Or are they filtering some of it down to the provinces so they in turn can do education on a more local level? Oh, absolutely. There's education being done in a variety of channels. And so um, there are definitely focused education campaigns within the province. They have dedicated websites and, and materials, um, you know, both on the government webpage, but also to the education system and then different websites there, too, and printed materials. So there are definitely lots of different channels. Um, so, yeah, there is lots of work being done. And there's lots of other, you know, private groups like the Canadian uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, they've created a toolkit. So there's lots of groups out there, I guess, using that money to create education materials. Is there any common a common uh, intersection where those who are responsible for informing the public can go and make sure that their message is consistent with uh, other provinces? So that the, the message, and, and you, you point out at the very beginning of the article, messaging at best on a good day is inconsistent across Canada. So developing some kind of standards for messaging would be critical, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> no, I was going to say the, the messaging is inconsistent because some places you'll find there's more of an abstinent folks focus. So more when the drug was illegal in terms of it's better not to use it and, and stay away from it, right. especially when you're, you're talking about educating youth and young people. Right. The, the more, I guess, acceptable or more evidence-based approach is to use more of a, a lower risk approach or right. harm reduction approach. So what's the safer way if you do choose to use cannabis? 
It's a pleasure to have Drs. Jennifer Donnan and Lisa Bishop with us. They are professors of pharmacy at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. And they are part of a team of researchers of five who just published an article at theconversation.com entitled, Cannabis Education Should Aim to Normalize, Not Prevent Safe and Legal Use. And Jennifer and Lisa, while you were on hold as we went into the news on this radio station, we ran a cannabis commercial. And this one was from the government of Canada, and it features a guy uh, having a conversation with what clearly is the order box at a drive-through, uh, and uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, serving person eventually comes on and says, "Sir, you're going to have to move ahead to the next window." That kind of thing. So that is a, an ad that is clearly targeting younger people. How effective uh, is was it if you heard it, and is that the right crowd to be targeting primarily? Jennifer, why don't you start on this one? Sure. Um, yeah, it was an interesting um, uh, commercial. We don't get a whole lot of commercials like that in St. John, so it was interesting to see what you're, or hear what you're hearing out in, in other parts of the country. I, I, I'm really glad you heard it, too, then. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that you heard it. Good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it does seem to be something that's a little bit more targeted to young people, which which is slightly concerning. Now, it depends on the population, of course, because youth age or school age youth, um, this is definitely problematic because we need to really, um, you know, we want to take a harm reduction approach, but part of harm reduction in that age group is to kind of reduce consumption or use lower risk. So we certainly don't want to be promoting it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whereas, you know, the young adult, the 18 to 25, we still don't want to be promoting it because there's still lots of risks um, that are associated with cannabis consumption in the under 25 age group because of the developing brain. However, it is legal in that population, and therefore we need to kind of cater our messaging slightly differently depending on which youth population we're talking about. So, yeah, there's, there's challenges there. <laughs> well, you know, and, and I suppose if, if you're going to catch them up and, and, you know, point to blenders in the ad, and uh, Lisa, I, the guy is at a drive-thru. He's, 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 I mean, it's silly, and he's, he's asking esoteric questions of a person who just wants to know if, if he wants a cheeseburger or not. But, but this implies the guy's driving, and that's not proper messaging for, for cannabis um, uh, health people. I, 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 did you see the contradiction? And, or did you, I'm sorry, did you hear the contradiction there? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, that's part of the messaging, right? I mean, it's not okay to drive when using cannabis or alcohol or anything. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely not a great messaging that we want to get out there. And the question is, what's the best way to communicate and and make sure that that everybody's aware? So, yeah, that's that's definitely considerations. So, and now we talked about, and, and in your piece on at the conversation, you talk about what to educate, and then you go into who to educate. Is who should be the primary target audience of just basic information about cannabis? So, in terms of I mean, it goes, I guess, across all spectrums of the population. I mean, the general public needs to be aware for the sense of, well, what is cannabis now that is legalized? Yeah. And, and, and making sure that, that people now have that mindset, yes, that it's legalized like alcohol, and, and what are the safety considerations? So it's, it's that level of messaging. But then there's also the messaging for youth, because the children, 
children and the the teenagers now are growing up in an environment where cannabis is legalized. True. So they need to be educated. I have a teenager myself who's in school. She's in grade 12. She says she hasn't gotten anything in the school system about cannabis to date. Now, there's been kind of pockets of information that we've been discovering as we've been doing some of our work right. that's happening in the school system, but there's nothing consistent. So that's one of the concerns. But then it's also, we've heard that the educators, so the teachers aren't as comfortable talking about it because they've grown up where it's been illegal. So sure. It, for, in order for them to be comfortable talking to the, their students, they need to be educated themselves. Then it's also parents, right? So what do parents need to have conversations with their children about? And then I guess the other side of things is even healthcare professionals, because now a lot of people are using it for medical reasons. Yes. So the healthcare professionals, when they've gone through school, they never got taught that much about cannabis because it was illegal at the time. So, I mean, it goes across the spectrum in terms of, a lot of different people that need to be educated. Well, it certainly does. And now, and now, for example, we have sports uh, organizations like football <laughs> and basketball and others, where, of course, this has been banned. And these are American-based uh, outfits, so this has been banned uh, from all of these sports, as, as a matter of fact, for, for years, decades in many cases. But now some of the wounded athletes in, in these very physical sports are starting to use CBD therapy instead of opiates, which is mm-hmm. wise... At the very, to, to say the very least, and, and, and but then of course they have to deal with. Well, wait a second, you're, you're using cannabis. That's a banned substance in our sport. You can't do that. But 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 it, it and so the the sport itself has no clue what CBDs are about. So how do we, uh, uh, Lisa Bishop? How do we organize some kind of standardization of messaging? So because you pointed, you and your group point out that uh, again on a really good day. Across Canada, cannabis education messaging is inconsistent. So how do we develop a more consistent messaging regime? Yeah, and, and that's that's a challenge because how do you to make sure that all the different segments are, are coming up with the same message? I mean, part of it is educating the people who are developing these messages Good. so that there's some kind of consistency and even a central hub to go to so that way we can all kind of make sure that we're aligned. And, I mean, it's going to be slightly different, too, in terms of the messaging. depends on the, the population. Obviously, with the youth, you're going to take a little bit more cautious approach. Sure still using heart reduction, but it's still more cautious than in an adult. But again, like sports, great example. Another example is workplace. So people are working and, and they're being tested now for cannabis. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of rotational workers here in this province, and they may go away and, and they get tested for cannabis, and cannabis stays in your system a lot longer. So in order to avoid that, they may be actually trying to use different types of drugs that eliminate from the body quicker that are more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of elements. So back to your question about consistency, yeah. it is a challenge if everybody's doing things in silos, but really almost need that, that central hub at least to be able to have those conversations and making sure the messaging is evidence-based and, and consistent and meets the needs of the population. 
Jennifer, back in the day, and I think they still have one. I don't know that they call the 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 role the, that anymore. But the United States used to have a drug czar, a public official responsible for what they uh, the term was the war on drugs. One individual whose primary responsibility was organizing that file. Now in Canada, we uh, our approach is different because, of course, it's a legal substance. Do we have though anywhere in Canada again? it would have to be at the federal level is there a similar individual or even small department in charge of messaging and this entire file um not that i'm aware of there's definitely resources with on you know the federal government website for people to use and avail of but in terms of being responsible for creating consistent messaging i think it's falling um the portfolios of lots of different people and organizations like the Canadian Center for Substance Use and Addiction, um, which are, who are funding our research. I mean, they have great resources as well at mm-hmm. CAMH. Um, so lots of people, different people are doing the work and they're trying to be consistent around the messaging. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the responsibility of one person to kind of ensure that all that messaging is consistent. So as you five, and you were five that uh, put this uh, this article together, cannabis education should aim to normalize, not prevent, safe and legal use. As you five pharmacy researchers go forward, uh, what would be the end game? Would, would you be happiest if you were able to come up with answers to some of the questions I put to you today, especially around education messaging? Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, we're going to, there's so much we found out around education. There's so many different segments, like we talked about, that require education. Um, Our first focus right now is going to be looking at youth and young adults. Um, But that's not to say that they're the most important category. It's just where we're starting. Um, But we will be hopefully developing an education strategy that can be implemented and evaluated to see if it is achieving the outcomes of um, encouraging more low-risk use and changing perceptions around risk and acceptability of cannabis um, among that population and, and the people that support youth and young adults. Um, so, I mean, that'll be our first goal, but we will definitely be targeting some of the other groups as well as we move forward. Interesting. And I guess, uh, Lisa, the, 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 the focus on youth uh, being uh, prominent simply because in terms of vulnerability, the young brain is, uh, is perhaps at the front of that parade and therefore needs the most attention with respect to cannabis information, correct? Yes, that is correct. And I guess the other part with young people... They are going to experiment, and and now that it's legalized, some people think, well, it's it's safe, so we can use it without any consequence. Right. So, a lot of the things that we hope is that if the youth are educated and informed and develop those skills, they can make informed choices. Right. So they really need to be the ones to be empowered to make those choices, rather than just all the adults and teachers saying, "Don't use; it's not good for you." Yeah. Well, if we tell you why and and even give suggestions about, well, what are some safer ways to to consume cannabis if you choose to use it and, and those kinds of things. So I think that's the the biggest accomplishment is that we're hoping to see is that youth 
know if they choose to consume cannabis that they're doing it safer, and of course they're being safe. Because health and safety is ultimately what we're concerned about. Absolutely. And as the work goes forwards, I would love the opportunity to tap back into the two of you and uh, just take a take the temperature of where things are going and and how that messaging is is getting out. Uh, to both of you, Lisa Bishop and Jennifer Don, and thank you both, uh, professors, uh, for for joining us this morning here in Vancouver. Fascinating conversation. You're on to something big. Stick with it. It's very important work you're doing. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Dr. Jennifer Donnan and Dr. Lisa Bishop joining us from the Department of Pharmacy at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. As we turn our attention once again to China, there's a new poll out by Maru Public Opinion saying more than half of Canadians view China as the single biggest security threat facing our country, with a majority believing that a global war of attrition involving the communist state is already well underway according to this new Maru public opinion poll, which no doubt would be bolstered by some remarks made this weekend by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper at the Conference of Defense Associations convention. Uh, he talked, uh, he said, basically, the West needs to be prepared for a more robust and aggressive China going forward in a world where the U.S. may not be so dominant on the international stage. Basically, the former Prime Minister Harper saying that there is a dynamic shift underway and we better pay a lot more attention to it than we are, especially here in Canada. Here to follow up and comment on this is Charles Burton. A pleasure to welcome Mr. Burton back to the program. He is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. He is also a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. He knows whereof he speaks. Charles Burton joins us this morning from St. Catharines, Ontario. Mr. Burton, Charles, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Good to be back with you. It's great to have you with us, Charles. Did Mr. Harper's remarks over the weekend resonate with you? Uh, in anything new for Mr. Harper in that regard? Well, I think it, it suggests that Mr. Harper gets it. Uh, you know, during the period of his um, of his prime ministership, our policy on China wasn't as as strong as I would have liked to have seen in terms of responding to the Chinese threat to uh, security and sovereignty, and um, responding to China's flouting of you know trade rules and and the norms of diplomacy, but he certainly gets it now, and I think he speaks with a strong with a strong voice. Um, after all, he is out of power, so he doesn't have any uh, any um, stake in this. I sure. think he's just trying to speak out as a as a as a patriotic Canadian, and I'm glad to hear him do that. Well, his point was, and and he pointed to Trump first, and and also to the fact that Biden is likely to remain in the same posture. The United States is disengaging to a, a certain degree as the dominant force in the world, the sort of uh, 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 balance, you if you will, uh, of superpowers. Uh, they, they remain a superpower, but they are, uh, do, uh, do you agree, by the way, First of all, Charles, with Mr. Harper's analysis that the United States has taken a step back and under Biden is likely to remain there. Well, I think that that's certainly uh, uh, the fact. I mean, there's a relative shift in power in the world and the United States is no longer as it cannot be as dominant as it was. Yep. Other powers are coming up and uh, and we have the threat of China that's a rival to the United States. 
And I, th- I think in general the United States is, uh, you know, weakened over time because they've allowed it to happen with, you know, allowing offshore sourcing of, of production and the general decline in the economy. And, um, and as a result, we're seeing uh, a lack of, of uh, defense of the values of liberal democracy, fairness, reciprocity, um, the sovereignty of states as China rises up to try and create a, a new global order based on, on the dominance of, of the People's Republic of China. Yeah, and well, so uh, that makes uh, and it, it dovetails very nicely into this rep- this uh, public opinion poll that we talked about at the beginning of the show, Charles. And here's another point: fifty five percent of respondents says a global war is already happening in the form of death by a thousand cuts. Quote: In which some countries use ongoing activities to destabilize, disrupt and undermine the sovereignty and political institutions of their adversaries. And that's not too hard to read both Russia and China into that description, is it? Yeah, and, and I mean, China has more resources and, and, and a longer-term sense of how to achieve this uh, defeat of the West in, in what one could see as a new kind of Cold War. Mm-hmm. Well, you take the Huawei um, uh, decision, for example. I mean, clearly, if the Chinese state got got control over our 5G telecommunications that would provide them with a bonanza for obtaining data that could destabilize us and the potential for disrupting our critical infrastructure through kill switches put into these uh, software routines sure. controlled by China. You know, it's just one example of a way that, that China could win a war and, and, uh, and bring us to our knees in the face of China without actually having to fire a shot or, or build a tank or, or, uh, or develop a new bomb. So, Charles, here's the deal. Most Canadians understand perfectly what you just said, the threat that Huawei and its possibly hidden technology represents to us all. Some of our Five Eyes allies have recognized that and said, no, thank you, period. Canada continues to dither. Canadians wonder why. Well, that is the real question. And as you say, that you know, it's not just that one opinion poll that you cited, but we've seen polling by Ipsos and Angus Reid mm-hmm. and, and the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, which suggests that the, the numbers of Canadians that, that feel uh, comfortable with our existing um, engagement with China led by our, our government is down there in, you know, 10 or 15 percent, something like that. And Certainly, you know, anybody who spends any time talking with their friends in Tim Hortons can figure out that most Canadians understand exactly what's going on here and think our government should be responding to it. The question is, why is our government not responding to it? And I think that's largely because, you know, as part of this overall process, the Chinese regime has got a lot of influence in the senior levels of of uh, politics and and our corporate life and are able to to have an influence over policy that means that our governments are not responding to China in the way that people would you know normal ordinary people like us would like to see and that is in itself very disturbing and you know we really ought to demand some transparency from people who are in influential positions who are receiving benefits from a foreign state in other words if you're getting money from a foreign country on I think the assumption being that if you're receiving their money, you'll you'll do their will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that should be that should be known. That's that's all we're asking for is that people shouldn't be receiving benefits from a foreign government without uh, putting it on the table and letting us know that they are in fact 
um, you know, co- potentially co-opted by by what one of my friends in Britain, Charlie Parton, describes as life-changing amounts of money that go to to officials who have, um, you know, not opposed China's overall agenda in their country. Indeed, you were talking earlier about the overall agenda, including and uh, being all at really endgame, really world dominance. And now, uh, Mr. Harper, in his remarks the other day, Charles said, this this, this has been on the table for a while. The, the, the game plan has been there for, for quite some time. What's happened, though, is since President Xi took over, the game plan has begun to be executed. Uh, so the the plan, the formulation of the plan, it took some time and, and has always been there in terms of the will or, or the end game. But now it's becoming much more aggressive under Xi. Would you agree with Harper's analysis? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think that China developed a certain economic and power heft where they don't have to pretend anymore about their intention. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they kind of used to give you the idea that they would be coming into compliance with the existing post-war institutions like the UN and the WTO. I mean, they, they even uh, signed the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights in 1998, you know, giving us the impression that they were going to become democratic with an independent judiciary and allowing for the rights of citizens and so on, it has become clear that that was simply a, 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 a means to deceive us so sure. that we would remain passive as China gradually developed the the basis for what they're doing now, which is, you know, economic and and diplomatic coercion. Um, and, and that's where that, you know, now we're at a stage where it, unless we start to respond vigorously right away, um, you know, it could be game over for for um, the existing global community based on those values of citizenship and democracy and, and national sovereignty. And we could be in a world where might makes right and we are all subordinate mm-hmm. to the overall agenda of the Chinese Communist Party. Joined on the line from St. Catharines, Ontario, by Charles Burton from the McDonald Laurier Institute. We're talking China again this morning with Mr. Burton. And Charles, here's a quote from the uh, executive at the Maru Public Opinion, uh, the, the poll we've been talking about. And you, of course, are acknowledging many others, all of which uh, essentially lean toward the same conclusion. But here's the boss over at Maru. Uh, quote, uh, the public without the benefit of defense strategy and policy to review, have come to a conclusion themselves. And this is based on what they've seen, read, heard, or personally experienced. So no matter what governments do, no matter what diplomatic envoys convey, the public has reached a full decision that China is a significant risk to Canada's security. Close quote. We did that by ourselves, Charles. You and I have been talking about this uh, for months. Uh, Canadians have been paying attention to this for months. It's impossible not to, especially with the two Michaels and that story going on. We have we have arrived at this conclusion by ourselves and find our government quite inadequate in the process. Well, I think that that's the bottom line there. You've got it exactly. We don't understand why our government does not respond to what's going on with China, whether it's the genocide against the Uyghurs, it's violation of Hong Kong and uh, Hong Kong's commitment to democracy when we have so many Hong Kong Canadians. Um, you know, they, they, their expansion into the South China Sea, their support for rogue regimes, um, the hostage diplomacy, their 
their violation of their commitments to to purchase Canadian um, agricultural commodities, mm-hmm. leading to great losses for our farmers, and of course the complete fiasco over the CanSino vaccine, where for some reason our government felt that we should be collaborating with a Chinese military company to to produce those vaccines to save Canadian lives, and of course the Chinese completely screwed us on that resulting, you know, tragically in, in loss of, of a lot of Canadians' lives, particularly seniors, because we didn't get the vaccine out as quickly as other countries. So, did did, you know, did Trudeau plan. get played by Ken Sino? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what other explanation is there? How can you be so so uh, naive in thinking that, that it would have gone any other way than, than when push came to shove, the Chinese would simply refuse to give us the vaccine unless we released Meng Wanzhou. Sure. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's outrageous, but this is a government that's trying to eliminate an entire ethnicity. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it, uh, like, how, where, 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 why would you think that we can have trust and goodwill with a government that time and time again <laughs> demonstrates to us that that's just not on the agenda for them? Well, possibly, so Charles, something- because you admire their basic dictatorship. Uh, apparently, and and uh, you know that's a bad thing to admire. It uh, the the question which you raised is really um, is there anything that can be done about this, and what about the next election, and would Canadians demand that any future Canadian government um, actually do a reset with China and 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 make those changes in our in our trade and other relationships to to uh, protect our country against the Chinese threat, you know, strengthen our security arrangements, uh, our capacity to deal with Chinese subversion and cyber espionage. And foreign policy typically, Charles, is not a very sexy election issue. However, this is serious stuff. Do you think our relationship with China will be a factor in the upcoming federal election? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, it is, uh, you know, it is top on the conservative um, uh, uh, foreign policy electoral platform. But I think that what I've seen before, and maybe it's a function of my age and general cynicism, is you know governments around the world who have come in on programs promising to to be stronger on China, and then when they get into power, you find out that they say we should be sophisticated and mature and in our relations with China and set aside differences and seek common ground. And then you find you know it's not just one political party in Canada who's elite seems to have um, cozy, lucrative relationships with China-related entities, but uh, the other parties seem to also be amenable to this. You know, money talks, apparently, and I think a lot of it is, as I say, about following the money and making clear to Canadians those people in positions of influence who are recipients, recipients of benefits from a foreign regime, and you know that can make, that can allow Canadians to decide appropriately who they want to vote for. Charles, do you think we have it in us as Canadians to do what the Australians have done, which is basically said, you know, we're going to get clobbered, and you're going to hurt us economically in every way imaginable, but tough. Um, we're not going to go along with this. We're going to call you out every time you need to be called out, and we're going to be aggressive about it. Uh, And and Australia has taken some financial hits and will likely take more, but they've also taken a stand. Do you ever see Canada doing that? I I don't, because, you know, we don't seem to have the kind of of grit that we're seeing out of Australia, both in addressing Chinese espionage, um, establishing a Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, which has resulted in some senior Australians 
resigning from lucrative consultancies, including their former Minister of International Trade, who was receiving an $880,000 a year private consultancy mm-hmm. from the Chinese billionaire. And, uh, but, and the other thing, which you know makes it worse, is Australia is dependent about one-third of their, of their external trade with China. Definitely. Canada only sells 4% of our, of, our, of our external trade with China, mostly agricultural commodities that we could be you know, seeking other markets for elsewhere because these are you know, international on the international market. So Australia not only is, is showing a lot more grit and, and backbone and self-respect in their, in their meeting this challenge, but they also have a lot more to lose than Canada would. Interesting stuff. Charles, I have to leave it there. It's a pleasure to have you back on the program, sir. It's always a a very informative discussion. Uh, Your experience and your time in China as a counselor at the embassy in Beijing uh, really alters uh, the the perspective that you're able to bring to us. And we enjoy your conversations very much. And as this, uh, as we get a little closer to election, this is not going to go away. So we must do this again soon. I look forward to that. Thank you very much for your kind words. Indeed. Charles Burton joining us from the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's in St. Catharines, Ontario this weekend. Carol and I have a, a rescue dog, a little Wheaton Terrier named Gracie that we got from the SPCA in Vancouver. So we're on the SPCA emailing list. We get all sorts of requests for funding and we help out when we can and lots of good information uh, emails as well. And this one popped into our box a couple of days ago. And it, it, the headline is... Dog training shows, what we can learn from TV dog trainers, or what can we learn from TV dog trainers? And they go on to say they have these, these shows have the power to influence how dog guardians, that would be you and I, view their behavior and what training methods they'll use to solve problem behaviors. But they go on to talk about some of the uh, training methods that some of these TV shows use are wrong, uh, they're poorly constructed, and some of the information uh, contained in these shows is simply misinformation. It's wrong. So we thought, uh, Andrew and I putting this together for this weekend, thought, well, if if the TV, some of the pros on TV are getting it wrong, let's find a pro who knows what they're talking about so we can talk about how to do it right. And we're just delighted this morning to welcome Ver- Valerie Berry to the program. Valerie is with Dog Partners here in North Vancouver and is here to talk about, well, giving our pets the right instructions. Valerie Berry, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's terrific to have you, Valerie. You saw this email from the SPCA as well, did you not? About uh, misinformation and on TV. And I mean, uh, I'm a dog person, uh, and it's fun. I watch TV shows because they get cute dogs on them sometimes, just to watch what the dogs do. Uh, and and I'm not particularly paying attention necessarily to what the trainers are doing, but some of what they're doing is incorrect. Talk to us about some of the bad stuff that's going on. Well, basically, they're using, you know, outdated information, talking about dogs as though they were part of our pack. And we really would like people to focus more on using positive reinforcement, which is the modern science-based methods we've been using for quite a while. Every time we see a show like this, it just kind of brings us backwards a little bit and gives us some information that's not really appropriate. It's not very humane. It doesn't allow dogs a lot of choice. It doesn't, it's not an easy thing you know, for people to have to understand the difference between, because it's dog training is an unregulated industry. So, you know, it's, it would be nice if the information that gets out there, especially on a TV show, which people are quite drawn to, 
is correct and humane and helpful and um, you know, there's lots of really good dog trainers out there that follow the science and keep their education up to date. Sure. So, Valerie, one of the things that came up in, in the press release from the SPCA, and I've, I've since started to pay attention to it, is when you're watching these doggy training shows, watch the body language of the animals in the show because they're not all keen and on their tippy toes ready to perform. Some of them look afraid. Uh, some of them look uh, um, d- d- uncomfortable, to say the very least. And uh, you don't notice that because, of course, the focus of the show typically is the star, who's the trainer, not the dog. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Sterling. And we often say if you turn the sound off, it's even more obvious if you just watch the dogs. Like, the, you know, we don't have to touch dogs to train them. If they're really worried, we can train them at whatever distance makes them the most comfortable. Okay. We set them up so they're really comfortable and Frankly, it should be fun for everybody. It doesn't really matter if your problem is a serious problem or if you have a young puppy you're training. It should be fun for the dog, too. Okay, so that, that's a great place to start because uh, I think, well, and of course, you have <laughs> in the paper just the other day, uh, you had the President of the United States who's got a rescue dog uh, who brings the dog to the White House. And of course, there are, what, a couple of hundred people on staff around the place at all times, busy, 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 busy. And one of the dogs, the rescue one, of course, bites a Secret Service agent. The dogs are returned to Delaware for further training. Uh, and, and I mean, pretty exceptional situation for any dog to be put into. I laughed, frankly, and I think the president did as well. I don't think it's a national emergency. No, I don't think so. And, and actually on the news recently, they had uh, a dog expert that I know, Michael Shikasho, who's a great guy and he uses all the right methods. And I'm really pleased they chose that guy to address it on TV. But, you know, it's, it's a very stressful situation of for a new dog to is. be put into. Sure. Uh, especially in in, a, in an environment, an ultra secure environment like the White House, but just and just taking an animal into any new environment is disorienting on a good day. But you take him into an, uh, in, in the, that kind of uh, of environment, it it would be a challenge. It's a challenge for a human to work there, let alone a dog to live there. I'm sure, and there's probably not a lot of fun going on with the with the dog introducing to everybody. It's pretty exciting and pretty stressful. So. So let's talk about training methods that are are positive and good. For, for example, a lot of the TV shows uh, they use uh, they use uh, the the reward system is is not paramount. There there's a lot of uh, a lot of verbiage going on. So let's talk about the most effective training methods. The ones because you say a lot of these TV shows are using outdated methods. So let's talk about what's effective and what's going on now that works, Valerie. Well, what we try and do is is set the dog up for success. So if I'm trying to teach a dog something, let's say it's just a simple sit, I'm going to use something that motivates the dog. And that's one thing people seem to lose sight of is the learner gets to decide the motivation. So if my dog's motivated by a piece of roast beef, then that's what I'm going to use to help my dog learn how to sit. And I'm going to reward them. And I'm going to make sure that I can get the behavior to happen easily. It's easy for them to perform it. It's easy for me to see it clearly, mark it, treat it, repeat it. So the dog's getting fed something or played with or affection or something that it really enjoys to have the behavior take place. You know, if I'm teaching a dog who's fearful to be less afraid of something, I'm again going to use something that they really enjoy and want to do. And sometimes that's something like distance or the ability to have choice 
and not be pinned down or held in place with a a rope or someone's hands. Mm-hmm. Dogs are f- motivated by food. They respond enormously to food. Not necessarily just roast beef either. They, they really do respond to food. That, and, and so when you're training, uh, regardless of the age or, uh, or of the puppy or dog, uh, small, really small food rewards are often the most effective method, Yes. Yeah, they are. I mean, they're considered a, what's called a primary reinforcer. So food is necessary for survival. So that's the number one reason why it's a really important reinforcer for a lot of animals. Ah, okay. So um, let's talk about two different categories of dogs, Valerie, this morning. Talk about puppies, because uh, as you well know, being a professional dog training person yourself, over the past year, and it's now officially a year, many of us, to the delight of our friends at the SPCA, have decided a furry companion would really help get us through this COVID nonsense, and uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of critters have been adopted here in BC and right across the country. So we're talking to a lot of a lot of new or newer dog owners these days, Valerie. And let's talk about people who have chosen to go the puppy route, which is the most challenging, frankly. Yeah, puppies aren't easy. I'm sure lots of people don't really realize that until they have one. But we've had lots and lots of puppy classes and we've been working with lots and lots of puppies. So, you know, it's nice to see people deciding to adopt a dog through COVID, there's no question. Sure. It's important to get your dog out there and do some socializing at the speed of your dog so you're not sort of flooding them, but watching your dog and, again, using that primary reinforcer, lots of great little food treats in the presence of things that are scary or potentially scary works really well with puppies. Take a, find a really good dog trainer. Animal kind trainers have lots of available trainers and take a puppy class if you can find one. How, how, how much is a puppy class and how many should you take to just sort of, because it's, it's a two-way it's a way, two way street or you don't drop the dog off and come back an hour later. The, no. dog, the dog and the human take the class together. It's, it's a dual learning process. How much does that cost and how many basic classes should a person count on taking just to kind of get on the same page with you and that little pup? Uh, well, my classes are uh, six sessions. Some, I've seen some that are four, some that are five, some that are six. And I would say there's a range of prices depending on where you live in your area. Right. In my, in my area, I charge 250 for a set of six classes. And, you know, the classes are a lot about teaching the human, frankly, a lot yes, more than teaching the dog. I agree. <laughs> and we have a lot. There's so many things we need to tell puppy owners. So I have a lot of supporting documentation that goes along with it. So we have you in class and demonstrate some things for you. And then we send you home with a lot of things to read. And we do a lot of, you know, backup support with email and my puppy's biting this and chewing this. Right. What do I do now? So, you know, and everybody's circumstances are different. If you live in a condo with an elevator or a house with a backyard. So everybody has a little bit different challenges with their puppy than, than the next person. And so let's, let's assume that there's a, a six uh, uh, element puppy course to, to, to go through classes what about an hour each and at the end of which uh, you should have a dog that is at least your friend and willing to listen to what you uh, want your dog to do well that's always our sort of primary focus is to help people get their dogs focused on them responding to them coming when they're called 
And yeah, at the end of an hour, we, you know, frankly, an hour is a long time for a puppy. Yes, it is. If I had my druthers, it would be a 10 minute class because that's about (laughs) as long as they can do it. That's right. Nobody wants that. But but the the humans uh, need to take a few more notes. Yes, the humans have a lot to learn. And kind of my goal in life would be to to get everyone to keep working with their dogs until they were mature, which is usually a couple of years. So we always say, oh, it's just two easy years. It'll be great. And they're like, oh, my goodness, two years. Yeah, yeah. but it's a commitment. There's no question about it. And, and especially as people have found, the commitment is certainly worthwhile. If you're willing to, to put out the effort, uh, what you get back in return is just quite life-altering. I need to take a break here, Valerie. Dogpartners.ca, one word, dogpartners.ca, friends, is Valerie's website. And uh, we're talking to Valerie Berry, dog trainer from North Vancouver. And our guest joining us is Tamara Dewar, who is an associate lawyer with Lindsay Kenny LLP, here to talk to us about some changes to the Divorce Act, which many Canadians don't understand, just happened on the 1st of March. Tamara Dewar, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yes, uh, there are some important changes in the Divorce Act that's going to impact many families, including many people listening today. And so we need to delve into some of the legal and practical impacts these changes will have on families. Okay, and this now is the Federal Divorce Act, Tamara, because there there are actually two sets of divorce laws, isn't there? There's a Federal Divorce Act, and then each province has its own uh, version, don't they? That's correct. That's correct, Sterling. So Mm -hmm. these changes, though, go right across Canada. This is the Federal Divorce Act, right? It's the Federal Divorce Act, yes. And it will will impact families across Canada. Um, But the nice thing about this new Divorce Act is it aligns very nicely with what we have in British Columbia called the Family Law Act. Okay. So some of the changes in the terminology... Uh, comport to what we have in the Family Law Act, which will make it, uh, well, we hope, will make it easier to uh, be enforceable in British Columbia and less uh, less dispute about the interpretation of this new act. But we shall see. We okay. shall see the and impact. The Family Law Act, those changes came down in 2013 here in B.C. And in that time, Tamara, I recall a lot of the changes had to do with changing the language. Correct. We, That's right, Sterling. Uh, we went to more modern terms and we got, got away from custody and and uh, uh, some of the more arcane uh, and archaic terminology. Is that what the changes to the, the new changes are about? Are they updating language, Tamara, or is there more substance to it? There is more substance, and um, that's actually a good question, because when you first look at these changes, there's a lot of changes in terminology and procedure, but there are some very significant changes that are coming in uh, in regards to family violence, and uh, in increasing um, protection of children. So the focus is on the best interests of the children, which it used to be before, but now we have clear guidelines for the courts to use um, when addressing these issues. And Tamara, regrettably, one year into this pandemic and all of the lockdowns and all of the confinements and restrictions and negatives that have been piled on us over the last year, sadly, has resulted in a significant uptick of domestic violence. And I wonder if some of these changes introduced a few days ago are in some way a reflection of what's happened here in the last year. 
You know, what's really unfortunate is if, if you look at Statistics Canada, if you look at the increase in divorce and the increase in family violence, that is certainly a consideration. Now, remember this act actually came into play during COVID, and they put it on hold for a period of time. Okay. But I have no doubt that it's not only the increase in family violence, but our recognition of family violence. People are more open to talking about it. Mm-hmm. It used to be quite difficult to get a partner, male or female, to open up about it. And then with this new act, the new Federal Divorce Act, there's a recognition of the impact that it has on children. So in real-life example, I've had many cases where um, the spouse, male or female, is being abused, but the abuser has never put a hand on the kids. Now, would that be family violence towards the children with this new Federal Divorce Act? Yes, we can look at those factors because I think, and I have to give a lot of credit to the judges and the lawyers that work on this um, day-to-day. They ask for these changes. Mm -hmm. It recognizes the nuances of family violence. But now we're really starting to see the impact of family violence has on children. Just witnessing family violence, being around a difficult situation, um, this has a very long-term effect on children, and I think the new Federal Divorce Act is is hoping to reflect the changes that we have in society and make have better, clearer guidelines for the courts to take into consideration to protect children. Well, you know, and that specific case that you outlined where the parent strikes and abuses physically the other parent and never touches the child, well, the, right. child, the child sees all of this, and so the child might as well have been smacked, too, in terms of psychological impact. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, if you look at it that way, I mean... Uh, they've done another a number of studies and reports, and the impact on the children can be devastating because they witness this family violence. Yeah. Right? But here's another thing that we have to consider. Sometimes family violence doesn't always just include physical abuse. Um, now, we understand that it could include physical, uh, sexual abuse, or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But another thing we need to look at is this new act will take into consideration threats, um, and it even addresses specific examples, for instance, threats to harm a child right. um, or damage property. And I have had cases like this where, you know, there's a young child and, and uh, the abusive spouse is threatening to kill a family pet. It's very traumatic on children. And sure. I think we're recognizing the impact that this is having. So, yeah, there are important aspects to the Divorce Act that have come in. And I think, you know, I think the key thing for us to look at is what were the four objectives for bringing in this am- amendment? And the four are, first, promoting children's best interests. That's key. Okay. Two, addressing family violence. Three, helping to reduce poverty in families following separation and divorce. And then four, making Canada a uh, family justice system more accessible and efficient to most people. So with that last point in mind, here mm-hmm. here in BC, when we introduced the changes to the Family Law Act back in 2013, right. one, of, one of the big changes at that time was the introduction on a grand scale, if you will, Tamara, of mm-hmm. mediation services. In other words, opportunities for disputing couples to air their grievances and, and try to work things out short of going to court and racking up ridiculous legal bills. And, <laughs> That's right. and, and also 
also, at the same time, taking pressure off the courts. Uh, the courts were all over this mediation. So it was, it was, it was, they were there, the, the main boosters of this. So the, right, the, so the notion uh, of, uh, of, of trying to keep people out of court is still consistent with these new changes, too, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That's correct. And I think it's important that people recognize that's an important change because I'm a lawyer, but I recognize the high cost of being in courtrooms. And also, unfortunately, because of COVID, the courts were closed for a period of time. Sure. Um, the judges stepped in. They've been fantastic. We have, we're now doing meetings via Zoom, MS Teams, um, but there's still a backlog. And so emergency and, um, and uh, matters that involve children are important. But, you know, mediation is such a useful tool, and lawyers are involved in that as well. well of course they are, yeah. Right? But I think sometimes with mediation, uh, people are less adversarial because they actually get to have their voices heard. They have decision-making authority, whereas if you go to court, your decision-making authority is taken away. The judge is going to review all the evidence, and sometimes people just don't have sufficient evidence um, to support their claims. Whereas in mediation, everything's confidential, so people feel more comfortable opening up, and it's voluntary. So you can choose the best approach for your family and what works between the parties, because let's be honest, if you have children, you're going to have to work together. Sure. For a lengthy period of time. Does the new, do any of the new changes uh, specifically reflect that, Tamara? The mediation, yes. I mean, and that was one of the key things. When I look at, when I look at the most significant changes, yes, there's a change in terminology, which, which we discussed. I mean, custody is gone, parenting orders and parenting time are here. But procedurally, it is now in the act that there is uh, emphasis and an obligation on lawyers to encourage mediation. Um, and there's even new duties imposed on parents to try to resolve uh, disputes outside of the courtroom. There's actually, in, in the act, there's five new duties for parents. One would be exercising responsibility in the best interests of the children. Mm-hmm. That's important. Two would be protecting children from conflict. And the third is, when appropriate, trying to resolve matters through family dispute resolution. And this is important because now we have provisions in the Act that really um, obligate people, parents and lawyers, to use mediation. Um, And the mediators have been terrific in the last year. Very busy, um, but uh, terrific in, in moving forward mediation. And that's something I encourage my clients to do as well. So the uh, again, the idea, all of these changes have been introduced specifically, as was the case here in 2013 in BC. The 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 prime mover between the changes to the Family Law Act uh, seven or eight years ago here and mm-hmm. a few days ago in Ottawa is still the same. It's all about quote the best interests of the child. Yes, exactly. It and it's always been the best interest of the child, but now with the new uh, federal divorce. Act, there's a bit more guidelines to work through. Um, they've used the latest uh, information that they have, um, and there's about 11 guidelines to address what is the focus on the children. So it's not just family violence, but how family violence is going to impact children specifically. And another thing that's very important now with this new act, it actually gives children a voice. Mm-hmm. Before they had a voice into saying what, what was going on, but now, but you know, often it was age specific. Right. You know, we we wouldn't really want to bring a child into the courtroom um, until they were 
much, you know, generally over the age of 12 right. to have their opinion heard. But now it's incorporated into the act that uh, they get a bit of a say onto the new parenting arrangement. So mediation's been very useful, um, and uh, some of the changes in the terminology and the procedure are still important. Even though they may be just changes in terminology, it does have an impact on people's lives. But the main things are the family violence issues, uh, which we're addressing, and um, more focus on the best interests of the child. Yeah. Everything is, is basically focused on would this new parenting plan between the parents work for the child and promote their well-being. Indeed. I uh, need to take a break here, Tamara, but just before going to the break, the, lest uh, either party insist on trying to fudge the numbers when trying to, when trying to determine uh, child support and other uh, uh, realities, uh, the, feds, right. the feds can now release tax information to the court if necessary, if someone is seen to be withholding. Uh, so the, the, the government can step in and provide whatever information the court requires to determine appropriate funding, right? Yeah, that's exactly, that's right, Sterling, and that's a really good point. I mean, that assists parents uh, tremendously, and it assists the court, so that's a nice factor that's brought in. So thanks for raising that, Sterling. Okay. It is an important aspect in this new act. Tamara Dewar is a lawyer with Lindsay Kenny LLP, and we're talking family law this morning, changes to the Divorce Act that kicked in uh, from Ottawa on the 1st of March, and a phenomenon, Tamara, that we were warned about by one of your colleagues, Angela Thiel, a few months ago, uh, actually towards the beginning of this pandemic, uh, COVID divorce, and you, you Google that, just Google that phrase, and you get pages and pages, basically with, with headlines, and I, I did actually just Google it, and so you've got divorces have increased during the coronavirus divorce rates on the rise as a result of covid19 and on and on divorce rates skyrocket amid covid19 uh, so is it basically the old cliche too much of even a good thing is still too much I completely agree, Sterling. I mean, I mean, I think people have been in lockdown for so long that if there was uh, problems before in the relationship, it's now exacerbated, sure. or people are just locked down and not able to enjoy their life. I mean, Angela Thiel is a very uh, highly experienced and well-respected uh, lawyer, and she noticed this trend in COVID-19, or we'll call them COVID divorces. Yeah. And like you said, you've Googled it, and it's true. It's increased. We're, we've looked at about a 30% increase in divorces. Um, and I do think that it's because people are locked inside with their spouse. Uh, and, you know, there's not many uh, outlets to get rid of stress. And we we have to have compassion for people. This has been a tremendously stressful period of time. And we note that divorces increase in time of negative life experiences mm -hmm. or, or things of this nature, like a pandemic. So significant increase. Um, family lawyers are very busy right now uh, with what we call the COVID uh, divorces. It's a thing, and is, it's happening. Is part of it, Tamara, simply the fact that, as you, you just said, we've been, you know, it's pretty locked down pretty, under pretty tight quarters and, and closed conditions for a prolonged period of time. Every person needs a little space. <laughs> exactly. And, I agree with you, Sterling. And if, and if, if we don't have that, uh, if, we, if you take away that all-important, terribly important personal <laughs> space, then, then, oh boy, you're looking for trouble. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, as we discussed previously, it could be there was already cracks in the relationship. True, yeah. 
So now you're stuck with this person for 24-7. You can't go out with your friends. You can't go to a sporting event. Um, and the obligation of childcare is huge. Sure. Because remember when the schools closed? I mean, people were scrambling to find care, which often they could not. So I think that... Even if there wasn't cracks in the relationship before, the stress of being locked in with your spouse during this very difficult time, financially, emotionally, socially, is having an impact on people's relationships. And I'm sure this resonates with some of the listeners sure, today. Sure. How much of how much of it, though? I mean, clearly, if you if you're in that kind of tightly locked in situation day after day after day, it begins to wear and so on. But how many of these cases, Tamara, are of our surprises it's not it's not a mutual this thing isn't going anywhere we right. might as well just let go and move on it's i'm out of here what wait a second what that person what what do you tell that person who's sitting across the desk from you working a box of kleenex like never before going <laughs> wait a second what just happened sterling that's a new phenomenon we're seeing in the last few months um people are coming and saying I was completely surprised. I had no, I mean, I know we were going through a hard time. I mean, you know, my, my spouse lost their job, but we were working through it. This came as a complete surprise. Yeah. Um, and I have to say in, in real life experience, I've just had two in the last month that the divorce came as a complete surprise to them. I mean, you know, and it's not like the people were burying their heads in the sand. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's been so much pressure and everyone's trying to struggle through this pandemic. Some people are just saying, you know what, I'm done. And it's very difficult for the the spouse that uh, is taken by surprise to have to reconcile this. Like, how did this happen? Sure. I do wrong, you know? And then there's, you know, and quite frankly, half the time they didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. But... You know, it's the situation. It's this lockdown situation. It's the stress that everyone's under. And some people say, I'm ready to walk from it. And others are saying, well, maybe we can work through it. But that's not always the case. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, then there's the matter of the practical realities. Okay, what now? Where do I live? What do I do with the kids? I mean, uh, you know, we have to we, – we, what? Right. Uh, again, the shock, I guess, it, more than anything else, it's just an, a complete to- head-to-toe shock. Right. Uh, no, I agree, Sterling. And it's something that I haven't seen that frequently before, because generally when someone comes into my office wants to discuss um, a separation, it's been brewing yeah, for yeah. a period of time. Mm-hmm. Not so much in the, you know, recently. I think maybe it's some people have reached their breaking point. They've you know been under uh, lockdown for a period of time. They're under a lot of pressure, and they just said, I'm done. And truly, literally have walked out the door. I know. And so, you know, in addition to these COVID divorces we're talking about, now we're now there's the element of surprise, which is very hard on people, particularly when you've been together. And what I've been seeing frequently is long-term yeah. relationships that are breaking down. Indeed. 30-plus years yeah, breaking down from the stress of COVID-19 and all the changes that have been going on. And there's a surprise element. So I agree with you. It's It's... It's there. COVID-19 divorces are there. And the surprise element, someone coming out of the blue, unexpectedly saying, I want a divorce, is increasing as well. Tamara, how do people get a hold of you? You're such a reasonable sounding human being on the radio. And I'm in, I'm in just a pickle of a mess. And I'd love to talk to that woman. How do people get a hold of you? 
They can uh, they can certainly call me anytime. I work at Lindsay Kenny um, and I do family uh, law, and I'm also the head of the wills and estates litigation. So, death and divorce seems to be my focus. But you can go to the Lindsay Kenny website, Tamara Dewar, or give me a call seven seven eight two eight nine nine five five zero. I'm happy to help you. Wonderful appearance, Tamara. Great to have you on the program today. We will do this again, guaranteed. Thanks very much. Sterling, such a pleasure to speak with you, and thanks for your very insightful questions. I hope that's uh, been a big help to people listening today. It sure has. Tamara Dewar from Lindsay Kenny LLP. That's where you go if you want to track her down. Brian Minter is joining us as we turn the corner with the clocks almost at spring. It's uh, time to get gardening. And Brian has this brief introduction to terms for new gardeners, conveniently, in this weekend's edition of the Vancouver Sun and many other newspapers across Canada. I got mine from the Windsor Star in Ontario. Brian Minter, welcome back. It's great to have you on the program again. Good morning. Hello, Sterling. It's wonderful to talk to you. I really enjoy our time together. That's absolutely amazing. And, you know, uh, Sterling, the one thing that has uh, really happened across our country uh, as we have this isolation and uh, staying at home more, uh, it's improving our home, improving the inside, the outside, uh, but mostly the the gardening where people want to have a better environment. And it's very interesting that, you know, what the perception is of what people are doing Number one, according to research, is people want to have more color in, around them. They, they just want to put in more color to improve the look. Yep. Uh, and number two was putting, uh, and that's annuals and perennials, but number two, surprisingly, uh, was a lot of the new flowering shrubs. Uh, more beautiful hydrangeas, and, and starting today, there's so many new varieties that repeat bloom and keep blooming for a longer period of time. And then finally, it was the food gardening. Uh-huh. A little bit of uh, uh, sustainable uh, food, uh, food security. Security, uh, being able to grow things you really love. Uh, so those are the top three. And um, you, you wanted to talk a little bit this morning, I think, about number two, uh, where we have all these um, beautiful shrubs about to burst into bloom in our garden over the next eight months. And uh, a lot of folks are out there with the pruning shears. That's right. We're going to clean up the garden and uh, whoops, uh, we take off all the blooms. Oh, I see, because now uh, we've been doing a little pruning around our house, as a matter of fact, lady. Okay, Carol's been doing most of the pruning around our house. Well, but, I, yeah, but, I understand that. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's being pointed out to me that, you know, there, there are new buds about to pop. And so is a pruning typically is something that's done at the end of the growing season. But uh, if is it, is, is it still okay in the spring, Brian? Yeah, to to some degree, and this is where we have to be so careful. And and uh, you know, I, I, it breaks my heart to see so many people planting wonderful new plants. Uh, the buds have developed over the late summer into the fall, and uh, they're ready to make a great performance. And then uh, either landscapers who you know are hired, and, and sometimes I understand they come into a complex and they have to do all the pruning once a year sure. uh, to get those plants came back. But they start taking off a, a lot of the buds of a lot of the plants. So after waiting that whole year you get nothing Mm -hmm. and that's why i'm I'm so concerned about this and you know it really is uh it's complex and yet it's very simple in terms of uh, approaching the whole thing if when you're coming up to your plants the leaves are off right now still sure and if you look at the plant you can see the buds uh they're ready to burst open Mm -hmm. so anything that has buds on it you know that it's uh, it's going to bloom and make a wonderful performance. And, uh, you know, some of the most important uh, right now are the um, hydrangeas, um, the big mop head, the, 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 and they're so popular today. But those are the ones that um, have uh, the buds already set, 
and pruning them off right now uh, will take off all those all the flowers. Uh, beautiful blooms. Sure. Except uh, a few coming up from the bottom. And the other one is uh, Forsythia right now, too. Uh, the buds are there and uh, on the island. Uh, many of them are already beginning to bloom and so on. And the nice thing about Forsythia is that it's a starting gun for Mother Nature for everything to begin in the garden. So when the yellow Forsythia blooms, but, um, you know, you can actually begin your early planting of uh, so many different types of plants. But don't cut the blooms off. Enjoy them first. And you can see the buds in most plants, like lilacs have the buds already yes, set right now, which for is sure. kind of cool. What the hummingbirds love is that uh, wonderful, um, well, it has the red flowers on it, King Edward, the, the flowering current. Uh, the hummingbirds are waiting for that to open. And uh, again, the buds are there, so please don't cut them off. <laughs> and I, a very simple rule, if I can see the buds right now, I'm just going to leave it alone. And the time to prune, as soon as the flowers have, have completely finished and the new growth begins, that's when you prune. So prune after flowering right. is probably one of the, the best rules we can possibly give uh, for virtually all plants in the garden. But the big thing is, if you can see the buds, back off. <laughs> okay. That's right. Otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be a pretty barren area of, of your garden because you, get, you just took yeah. away all the flower potential from that, that plant. That's right. And the other thing, though, uh, it roses right now, probably the, the number one plant in most gardens, Sterling, um, people tend to just, uh, you know, give them a little bit of a pruning to yep. top them back. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, uh, unless it's a climber where you want those long vines or, you know, one of the ramblers that you, you know, spread along fences, we leave them too long. And uh, what happens is the bottom stems get bigger and woodier. So you get this ugly-looking plant that has blooms, you know, six feet high where you can't smell them. <laughs> and uh, so pruning your roses back hard and we always say after the last hard frost is when you actually uh, do that. Now, it'll change throughout the province, of course. Sure. But uh, we can certainly, in the lower mainland, um, in the Gulf Islands and Vancouver Island, uh, we should be pruning roses right now. But sterling, they need to be pruned harder to push them down maybe 8, 10, 12 inches to force the plant to push up new growth that completely renews the plant each year. And these are the old traditional ones, you know, the fragrant hybrid teas right. and grandifloras and so on and floribundas. But the new uh, trend today is uh, plants which are actually called shrub roses. Uh, they don't have a bud union. Uh, and the thing is, if you keep pruning them back hard, you get a bigger, fuller, nicer plant. And so hard pruning on, on our roses right now is incredibly important. And then there's the other things that confuse us. The other big uh, improvement and a number of new varieties coming out are the um, the PG we call them hydrangeas the mop they actually the, they have a cone shaped flower on them they are the ones that you need to prune back this time of year sure right but if you look carefully you're not going to see any buds at all all you see are these woody sticks and again the same thing is true if you let them get higher and and more woody you don't get that beautiful performance so even pushing those back a wee bit right now and that's the confusing part is, yes, go ahead and prune the late-blooming hydrangeas because they bloom on the new growth and on the new wood uh, to give you a, a very, very beautiful display all summer long. 
Brian Minter is with us on the line, and we're talking gardening, our first gardening conversation of 2021. Brian, so good to have you leading that parade. I wanted to talk to you about item number three on your list uh, that you found of Canadian planting priorities that we've come up with over this last year of, of a lot of time on our hands. And item number three was food. And when it comes time to knowing when to plant food, whether it's an herb garden or vegetables or whatever, you have a rule. You garden by the 10 Celsius rule. What's that? Yeah, and you have to be a little bit careful because March weather can be so, you know, volatile. In exactly. Terms of, you know, coming in like a lion or lamb going out. It just never disappoints that way. But um, as, as a rule of thumb, uh, when you suddenly get consistent daytime temperatures of around 10 degrees, now that doesn't mean it can't get very cool at night, but when you get uh, to that particular stage, you actually can start a lot of your early vegetables. And what are we talking about? Uh, a lot of the uh, onions, the onion sets or the onion plants that have been hardened off, uh, talking uh, about peas. Everybody loves garden peas. Sure. They love the cold. They do far better in the cold. Oh. Uh, and all your brassicas, your cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, and so on, <clears throat> once they're properly hardened off, and that's something I do want to mention, that that hardening off issue is very important. What does that if mean? If you buy plants at any store, uh, and chances are they've been in a greenhouse or in a protected environment. Mm-hmm. And when you bring them home, if you put them right out in the garden, whether it's uh, even a, a sunny day, they can burn or they can get a, you know, a really chill or a bit of frost damage at night. So I always harden them off by putting them outside in a protected area, out of the sun and out of the wind, for at least three or four days to allow them to strengthen up and toughen up and get used to the outside conditions. Oh. So once all your, your transplants have, um, you know, essentially been hardened off, then you can put them out in the garden. And starting so all the brassicas, <clears throat> even some of the varieties of lettuce uh, uh, can go in right now. And you see a lot of the uh, commercial uh, growers, um, you know, putting out their fields already. Well, you but know, it's conv- conveniently, nighttime- Brian, it's, 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 as a matter of fact, right now in downtown Vancouver, it's 10 degrees. Tomorrow it's going to be 8, 9 Tuesday, 11 Wednesday, 10 Thursday. I'd say we're pretty much in 10 degrees Celsius territory, according to the Minter program. <laughs> Except for, I just heard on CKNW a weather report, uh, a bit of a wind chill tomorrow morning. Right. Uh, and uh, that will push the temperatures below uh, freezing. And that's why it's okay to do this, but you need to have uh, a little bit of protection at night. And, you know, basically Canada-wide, uh, we the go-to is the remake off or floating row cover. So at night, uh, nice during the daytime, but we're going to get a frost just put your floating row cover over top of your plants uh, and while we're still getting at frosty time. It'll protect them enough that uh, they're going to be okay. Okay. So that's, that's really the thing. And in terms of herbs, you mentioned brilliant because herbs are so popular right now. You bet. Uh, just adding so much value to your foods. There are two types of herbs, essentially, that can go in the garden right now. All the hardy biennial and perennial herbs, what are we talking about here? Uh, all the marjoram, oregano, chives, uh, parsley. Ah, um, we, even we planted parsley yesterday, here. Brian. <laughs> we did. We uh, went to the, we went to the gardening the store, got some bedding plants, and actually put some parsley in yesterday. 
Wonderful. And uh, I mean, we miss that uh, garnish on our, all our foods. But the thing is, those are the ones that will actually take the cold with no problems uh, whatsoever. Okay. But a lot of our, our more tender uh, plants, uh, basil, the number one herb that everybody loves to have, uh, that's really uh, won't take any cold. Still too at all. cold, uh, right? Really, it's almost. Almost June before that can go out. Okay. So it's determining what are the hardy herbs that'll take a frost and what are the more tender ones. So we just basically hold off on those, and that's really the key. But starting also um, the small fruit. Uh, having fresh strawberries in your garden mm-hmm. uh, right now is very important. And uh, everybody's planting asparagus uh, to get those wonderful spears coming up in your garden and raspberries. When you're choosing a lot of those plants, a lot of folks don't realize that the main season or June-bearing varieties are the ones that won't produce until next year. If you'd like to have food this year, plant your ever-bearing types, and uh, even though they'll take a little while to get established, over the summertime they will produce lots of good food this year. And things like rhubarb, which is a perennial that comes back year after year, that too should go in. So you're planning sort of a longer longer term. The other thing that people are anxious to get going, and uh, I always hear the ads on CKNW, uh, Save on Foods in June, talks about these first nugget potatoes fresh out of our farming fields. Right, <laughs> yes. Um, if you're going to plant potatoes, plant the early varieties. Um, the early warba, for example, is that first one, or, or Norland. Uh, people just grab potatoes and put them in, and not realizing that there's early, mid-season, and late. And late. So we do the early ones only this time of year. And a couple of little things, put them in raised beds or mound up uh, when you're actually putting potatoes in. Uh, they don't like to go flat. They want to be, you know, uh, up in the air, but 8 or 10 degrees. So plant them very shallow in mounds. Uh, that will get you better. And remember, to prevent scabbing, that kind of messes up your potato no manures, absolutely no manures, and no lime where you're planting potatoes to make sure they come up just the way you'd like to have them. So the early potatoes can go in right now? Thank you very much. They can, absolutely. And people, that seems the the demand for uh, potatoes right now right across the entire province is just overwhelming. Some of the suppliers can't keep up. Um, You know, not saying there's going to be a shortage, but uh, my advice to you is if you see potatoes uh, wherever you shop in a garden place, I would probably pick them up right now because, uh, as with a lot of things, um, a lot of vegetables, uh, there's a good supply of seed and and no problem at all. And and that brings up a very good point, uh, Sterling. Many people love to start all their plants from seed Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to transplants. And uh, remember, uh, there is about a three- to four-week differential. So if you're planting seeds uh, in the garden right now, uh, make sure the soil is warm enough for them to germinate and only plant your cold early ones, like peas, for example, where beans, you need to wait till we get those 10-degree nighttime temperatures, mm-hmm. which is really until the middle or latter part of May. So choose wisely. Our seed catalogs that we have, and we have some very good uh, companies in British Columbia like West Coast Seeds, their catalog is a garden guide giving you the timing that you need. Because okay. when we're talking about gardening, timing is so very important. And better to be a little bit too late rather than too early uh, because you'll make sure that you get good germination. But there is that differential. If you want to put transplants out, you saved yourself uh, three to four three weeks. Three to four weeks, yeah. Timing. And, yeah, for a lot of us, that, that's really important. Sure it is. Brian, final question to you. I, mean, I, think we're, I think I know what the answer is because I think it's in the same category as uh, basil, but it's way too early for tomatoes right now, isn't it? 
Yeah, and, and what concerns me is a lot of folks, especially our, our wonderful new gardeners, are not aware of that, and they see them in a garden store, and uh, they'll pick them up and plant them, and of course the potatoes need those 10-degree uh, nighttime temperatures for them to do well. Uh, if you, but the confusing part is um, you'll see them in stores because a lot of people have small greenhouses yes. uh, or cold frames uh, that they can get that earlier start. But going outside in the type of weather we would have in March and early April, way, way too early for, for tomatoes. tomatoes. So yeah. a little bit of patience there is, is so very important, and peppers and cucumbers as well. What's the website, Brian? You have, uh, such a, you're such a resource. Where can people go to find out more about the way you think about gardening? Oh, uh, it's uh, mintergardening.com. All right. Brian Minter, the first of what I hope, sir, will be a a few conversations about fun in the backyard (laughs) and digging and getting dirty in the summertime. Thanks so much, Brian. We appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. There's Brian Minter, gardening expert extraordinaire. Well, it's a great... moment we have here to talk to Justin Paquin about a brand new Van Gogh exhibit coming to Vancouver in just a very few days. Uh, Justin, good morning. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on board. You're talking to a big fan of Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, that's great to hear, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, We're very excited to be bringing the exhibition to Vancouver. Well, tell us more about it. As I understand it, there's going to be 25,000 square feet of space at the Vancouver Convention Center dedicated to Mr. Van Gogh. Uh, Take it from there, Justin, please. Yes, uh, 25,000 square feet, as a matter of fact. Even in the past uh, few weeks, we've been trying to expand that to be even larger. But, uh, you know, inside of the convention center, uh, you're going to have over 200 uh, of Van Gogh's famous art pieces uh, projected on screens and on the floor uh, all around you. Okay. Uh, it's going to be, you're going to be walking inside of the paintings, inside of the images. It's going to be a completely immersive experience. Ah, unlike perhaps, and I've been to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, which is also a a deeply soulful experience, at least it was for me, but there you are walking around uh, looking at works of art uh, along with, uh, you know, dozens of other people, and it's a a classic format. The picture is on the wall, well lit, you're comfortable, and that's that. You experience, and you have the luxury of taking whatever amount of time you need. This is different, though, because the actual piece of work, whether it's Starry Night or wherever, probably still in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, but Justin, you've, you've recreated it to the point where the viewer becomes part of the, of the picture. Yes, um, the creators, uh, Annabelle and uh, Julien, are incredible uh, creators. Uh, they're from uh, France, and this is uh, their show, which we're very privileged to, to bring to uh, Canada. Uh, and the, the, the very you, you, the, when you walk inside of this space, it's it's so uh, incredible to just to describe because it's unlike anything will anyone will have seen before. Mm-hmm. The walls, the very walls and the floor are the artwork, and so it's you get to experience it in your own unique way. Right, um, you know, with members of your, um, your you know, either your family or the, whomever you come with, uh, and it, it's quite wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming this because this opens in just a very few days that the construction, for lack of a better word, Justin, is already well underway. The exhibit is being set up as we speak. Absolutely. The exhibit has been, uh, you know, the installation began uh, last, you know, about a week and a half ago. It's a long process uh, given the, the, the size and uh, of, of what we're installing and uh, they'll be finishing up this week um, uh, and we'll be prepared for the opening. 
And I, I should probably also mention that in addition to this interesting twist on presenting Mr. Van Gogh's artwork, the exhibit comes complete with a very uh, well-known, shall we say, soundtrack. Yes, you will be, uh, you know, as you walk through the experience, you'll be uh, listening to uh, the, the likes of, you know, Beethoven and, and various other, um, you know, well-known artists, um, musicians and, and composers um, from the European, um, you know, you know, past couple centuries. Indeed, I'm looking at some of the names, Mozart, of course, Saint-Saëns, uh, yeah. Handel, uh, the list does go on and on, and again, and Bach and so on. Uh, it, it's, it sounds like a wonderful experience. Now, there was a batch of tickets released last weekend. Talk to us about how this is going to go, because, of course, Justin, we're still under very uh, strict COVID protocols. Obviously, uh, participants and, and spectators will move in one direction only. There will be limited numbers of individuals allowed through the exhibit at any given time. I'm assuming masks will be required and so on. Tell us more about that and how one goes about getting tickets. Yes, the the great thing about this um, exhibit and this particular experience is that it is completely touchless and contactless. There is no, um, you know, and, and when you go in experience and you walk inside, there's nothing you have to touch. There's no places to to, to sit. It's not like a seating environment. Mm. Um, and it's very much you 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 walk around and you. You know, you look at the artwork on the walls. From a health and safety perspective, yes, everyone is, uh, masks are mandatory uh, and will remain mandatory uh, throughout the run of the exhibit. Uh, we have plenty of staff to who are, who are trained to ensure and monitor physical distancing. Uh, prior to entering the exhibit, um, guests go through a, you know, a COVID screening uh, protocol to ensure that, you know, they're, they're, we're checking for symptoms. We have contact tracing in place um, for each, you know, everyone that is coming inside. It's, um, it's been a really great, uh, uh, you know, an interesting experience this past year uh, as, uh, you know, we have been uh, operating exhibits uh, across Canada, actually. Uh, so this will, you know, Vancouver is not the first. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, you know, understanding and working with, uh, you know, uh, each, each provincial, uh, you know, government uh, with respect to the orders and, and how to operate in a, in a safe and, in a manner is is very very important to us. Indeed, uh, we want to we want to make sure everyone has you know complete confidence in in what they're coming to experience. I read um, about this a week ago, and at that time, tickets were in high demand. And as I said, last weekend, a batch, another batch of tickets were released. So, Justin, how far in advance already are tickets sold out? Tickets are sold out for all of March, all of April, um, most of May. Um, you know, if you're if you're looking to get a ticket for this, uh, you know, for for Imagine Van Gogh, I would highly recommend going to the website and and looking to see uh, which tickets are left and making a purchase uh, sooner <laughs> than later. Oh, okay, because this ends on June 11th, so we should we should know there is a, there is definitely an ending to it all. It's in in June 11th, so if you're already booked for the month of March and the month of April and halfway through May, it gives our listeners a chance this morning, Justin, to appreciate how incredibly popular this is and what a huge hit it's going to be in just a few days when you open on friday so where do they go to get uh, get some tickets for themselves you can go to imagine-vangogh.com all right to purchase tickets and and receive more information on the exhibition it's uh, i would highly encourage it it's going to be a an incredible experience kind of a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity for vancouver
Well, you're talking to a fan here, Justin, so uh, I'm a pushover for this one. Thanks so much for telling us about it, and uh, the very we wish you considerable success with this, and I suspect you're going to enjoy it as well. Thank you very much. Pleasure. There's Justin Paquin, the director of the Paquin Entertainment Group, the people behind Imagine Van Gogh, coming to the Vancouver Convention Center this Friday through June 11th. Remember that closing date and grab some tickets. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.